broadcasting from Washington, D.C., this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This week on Insider's Guide to Energy, we're going to try something a little bit different. We've brought our friend over from Redefining Energy to have a conversation. And Jeff and I, Laurent, we go all over the place. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It goes everywhere from COP to carbon capture to the Cybertruck. It's a great episode. Jeff, why don't you go ahead and just kick us off? Well, Chris, I'm thrilled today to have Laurent Segalin from the Redefining Energy podcast. He's a decades-long energy professional and outspoken thought leader from across the pond. So really excited to have his perspective today to balance out what's um, been a more American perspective, I would say. Uh, for me, I know, Chris, you've had more experience across the pond. Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to having Laurent here. Uh, he and I have gone back and forth on text for probably a couple of years now. Um, if I step out of line with something he doesn't like, I quickly get a DM from him saying, hey, why was this person on here? Why are you giving this person a voice to say this or that? Or, or you're absolutely wrong with what you just said, Chris. So <laughs> I find him one of the shyest Europeans I know, and it's an honor to have him on the program today. So <laughs> bring Loren on and, and see where we go. I'm blushing. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> yeah, let's have a good conversation. What we're going to try to do today is run through some of those hot button issues and give quick takes. Are these overhyped, underhyped, appropriately hyped? I know we can't get you to try to constrain you too much. <laughs> uh, I do want to be clear, though. We're not trying to say, will it work or will it not work? It's really, or is it good or is it is it bad? We're really trying to understand, is it over or under hyped? And that can be subjective. And let's have fun with it. Look, I'd like to start with a story. And it's the story of the six blind men. I don't know if you know it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So there are six blind men who come and they start touching because they can see. And the first one said, this is a tree. The second one say, no, this is a wall. The, second, the third one is, this is a snake a spear, a fan, a rope. And in fact, they're all wrong because they're touching an elephant and, you know, one is touching his leg. Uh, the other one's touching his tusk or his trump. And, you know, so when we talk about energy, sometimes we are those blind mans and we lack the big picture. And of course, you need to go back to uh, the, the, the four fathers of thinking about energy, like Daniel Jurgen. And and it's always good because you know you see, you see all those uh, prediction or innovation and so on. And at the end of the day, it's really about scale. And and in my personal opinion, there's been one technology per decade who made it, and the rest was just background noise. And that would have been in the 80s, the the CCGTs, or 70s, the nuclear. The, the the 90s would be wind. The 2000 would be solar and uh, last uh, decade, the batteries. And that's it. You know, these are, these, these are my principles. And then a lot of weird noise around it. If every 10 years we get one new technology, mm -hmm. and you've, you've kind of covered the ones where we're at today, I think solar and wind are the prevalent investments today. Mm -hmm. Storage is, 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 I don't know, are we in the 10 years or at the beginning of the 10 years for storage? Uh, so... Takes ten years to, you know, for a technology to to reach full maturity. That's the ten years, and then the next ten years, the rollout 
is pretty crazy, and I guess it's an S curve. We are we are into if you take wind, uh, the the global installation the past three or four years have started to plateau. I mean, there's it's still a lot. It's hundred gigawatts still a lot, but it's not it's not much growth there. Uh, whereas uh, solar, we're, we're really in the steepest part of the S curve. So we had a you know hundred gig and then oh two hundred gig and the, the last year like four hundred gig and. But I'm not sure we we can go to 800 gig. But you know, it's 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 pretty phenomenal. Now, when it comes to batteries, there's a lot. The interesting thing is the chemistries are still working and changing very fast. You know, we had until 2018, we had everything was cobalt. So then, after the backlash was, what about the Congo? What about those little children and blah blah blah? You know, guess what? They removed the cobalt from. Uh, from the batteries, and then after it was all nickel, oh, nickel, nickel. Now we are removing nickel, so it's lithium ferrophosphate, LFP. LFP, oh, oh, we're running out of lithium. There's not enough lithium. Everybody invests in lithium, and kaboom, last year, <laughs> lithium went down 80%. And guess what? Now they are coming with sodium. So, you know, <laughs> this is this is the decade where really people are, you know, searching for the, the, the perfect combination. And the, the innovation which are happening are absolutely fascinating. And I'm investing in batteries. I can tell you every six months, I have to reset a lot of things. The thing is, I'm not re- writing reports. You know, I'm writing checks. So <laughs> you're a bit more cautious. Let's talk about batteries on wheels, ah. electric vehicles. This is an area where there is a lot of hype. And to some extent, that's been proven out. Uh, I'm looking at some numbers here that say in 2023, middle of uh, of last year, we had 16% of new light duty vehicle fleets as electric. That sounds very high to me. As a percentage of the overall fleet, I think we're still in single digits in, in the 3 to 5% range. Uh, IEA has predictions that globally 30% of the light duty vehicle fleet will be electric by 2040. Do you buy this trajectory? Is the EV growth rate and transition overhyped or underhyped? Uh, I would say it depends where, because uh, you have uh, different markets. Uh, you've got China, you've got Europe, you've got the US, and you've got various other parts of the world. And, and the story is very different and could even go in, in different ways. Now, now, now we need to roll back because... I think a lot of people think it's for the environment and my personal opinion, it's not. It's about energy security and it's about technology dominance. Now, if you look at uh, China now, they need to import, what, 15 million barrels of oil per day. A lot of it passes uh, in front of the fifth fleet in Singapore. It's it's pretty easy to, to, to blockade uh, uh, China's import of petroleum. And uh, if you read Daniel Yergin... Uh, it's the oil embargo on Japan who triggered the war, uh, triggered Pearl Harbor six months later. My understanding is uh, the Chinese feel very insecure in terms of energy security, having to import all, all that oil. And uh, that's one of the reasons they pushed very hard the development of EVs. And now it's really proving a success. Uh, if you look at Europe, we are a bit in the same uh, category, c- considering we need to import 80% of our oil. Whereas in the US, you're drowning in oil, and uh, apparently the legacy automakers are 
you know, paying lip service to EVs, but they probably don't know how to do them. So they like to, you know, probably kick the can down the road and hoping that Tesla does not exist. <laughs> but that's that's what I'm thinking. You're referencing kind of the world energy map and, and security and, and Daniel, your uh-huh. concepts. Energy security is interesting. One of the things that I, I see is potentially hype or potentially going after is this whole hydrogen thing going on right now. We talked about all this oil going one way or the other in the U.S. You, know, you call us to wash and, and uh, hydrocarbons. I'd say we probably are in natural gas very, very high, um, less so maybe in traditional oil, but we can get to oil however we get it. But what about hydrogen? Everybody's rushing. There, There's bills and big centers being built and billions and trillions being lined up to go towards hydrogen. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's a scam of epic proportion. I think that everybody who wants to invest in hydrogen, I'm willing to take a trade against them and short whatever they invest into. That's as simple as it gets. As for my address, we'll organize the trade and I'm going to make a lot of money. And and it's not because the head of Nikola is in jail. But, you know, hydrogen, they have touted hydrogen for transportation. It's not going to work. For heating, it's not going to work. Hydrogen, if you use it as energy, it doesn't work. It's just too expensive. $1 per kilo equals $9 per MMBTU. Gas is at $3 per MMBTU. And that's $1 per kilo. In, if you want to make it green and everything, you, you can't do it before $5 per kilo. So $5 per kilo, that's $45 per MMBTU. That's insane. You want to kill your industry, use hydrogen. That's it, period. Now, of course, we're going to use it for ammonia. We're going to use it for a, f- a few other stuff. Even steel, you know, I talked to my friends at the biggest non-Chinese uh, steel company. And I said, oh, do you want to put hydrogen? Said, yeah, I mean, give me hydrogen at $1 per kilo. I can use it in my uh, in my furnaces. But, you know, all the proposition I have is uh, $5 per kilo. So, okay, maybe in the U.S. they give you $3 per kilo. But, uh, you know, in Europe... Uh, <laughs> You know, the bill spread is just too big. No, that's it. Just It's just too expensive. Chris, do you have a take on hydrogen since you brought it up? I'm surprised you're saying, you know, $3 a kilo. I, th- I think Europe's probably about 12 a kilo right now. I think that the initial targets when everybody was hyping it was one, and then everyone's moved to two or three is where they're hoping it will get to. I think there's a lot of infrastructure getting put in place to sell the electrolyzers and, and get the, the businesses there. So spent a good bit of time doing hydrogen focus in Germany recently, and the auto industry may be changing. China's uh, doing a lot of EVs and producing lots of cars, and there's regions of Germany that really want to make a lot of hardware and electrolyzers and pieces like that. But there are a lot of people making big bets that hydrogen prices are going to come down and they're going to mandate it in Europe. I think that's the difference between the U.S. and Europe, although the U.S. is just with the IRA putting billions into building hydrogen centers. There's one big one going into Houston now. The guys who produce the kit, uh, they want some people to buy them. You know, that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, I've been to the hydrogen conferences and I saw Michael Libraik uh, delivering uh, like a world-class speech for 20 minutes without notes in front of two thousand engineer trying to sell their pumps and electrolyzer and various systems. I didn't see a lot of customers. I see a lot of sellers. And generally, when I go to conferences, I like, I like to see a good balance between the two of them. So yeah, it's pushed by the people who want to sell kits or want to get some subsidies. That, that's fair, but that it's doesn't create a market. Force the issue though. I mean, in Europe, it's becoming policy, right? They're, they're, they're really pushing for fit for 55. I mean, hydrogen is is part of a lot of government policy. Yeah, it's bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> Look, I know the lobbyists. I know the lobbyists. I know their I know their name. <laughs> they are they are bozos. 
That's the only thing I want to say. You know, yeah. a lot of things have been pushed by the gas industry. They are trying to keep their assets alive and pretend that you can put hydrogen in the gas pipes and everything is going to be okay. But it's, you know, it just doesn't work. It's a, it's an industry who, you know, lives and die by burning molecule and, Okay, gas, you can't do gas anymore, or you won't do gas anymore, so you're going to do hydrogen, everything's going to be okay. No, it's not going to be okay. But again, that's my opinion, but I'm willing to trade. I'm willing to trade. Send me any of your lobbyists, any guy, you put any report on anything. Okay, guy, we go to a lawyer, we write a swap. Boom. See you in five years' time. I like I like this the uh, the hydrogen short. I, I can't really. It's hard to disagree, but on on both sides. I started my career in hydrogen, actually, in, in fuel cells for forklifts and for um, retrofitting vehicles to run on gasoline, but then do onboard fuel reforming to turn it into hydrogen for a fuel cell powertrain. That was gosh, coming up on twenty years ago. So. I have a inherent negative bias, generally know hydrogen as the fuel of the future and always will be uh, sharing that crown with, uh, with fusion. But I have to say I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. And, but Laurent, I, I like the commanding heights frame, the Jurgen lens on hydrogen it isn't actually about the customers. It's about national policy. It's about moving away from, from fossil fuels. And this is very clearly a government strategic push rather than a customer pull. And that may be important, not because it's maybe the best option, but because there's other geopolitical uh, strategic Im importance. And, and I do think we're going to see some interesting niche markets come out around hydrogen. You mentioned steel, green ammonia. So I'm optimistic on a few of those, but broadly, um, hard, hard to argue that it's not overhyped. Good. And, and look, if people want to know more, there is this excellent group of scientists called the Hydrogen Science Coalition. They have a wonderful website, uh, Paul Martin, David Seban, Tom Baxter, and so on. And everything, you know, what I say in three minutes, you can read hours and hours and you get all the industrial calculation, everything, why it's not going to work. So I say it, if any investment bankers listen to this, if you invest in hydrogen without first looking into the Hydrogen Science Coalition, you should be fired. You don't deserve your job. Okay? That's it. Wrong words. Hydrogen, because I think that's it. Lorenz made his point. Uh, Good. I shared what I thought, <laughs> Jeff, you have. So did you want to go back to EVs? I think we brushed over those, and there's a huge amount of noise around EVs these days. I'm an EV optimist, I, I will say, and I really appreciate the geopolitical framing because I think most of the debate and discussion in the U.S. tends to center around very consumer-centric perspectives of, oh, yes, but what about range anxiety? Or what about zero to 60? Or what about this or that model that's coming out? Or is there a three-row SUV EV model that meets the American demand for space and range? Um, so I, I think that's a very consumer-centric discussion. And I appreciate the, the, the national geopolitic discussion, which is actually the reason why we're shifting is to, to get off oil. And I think we're seeing that uh, definitely in the U.S. led by California as usual. So I'm optimistic, actually, that we're going to see a very substantial new market penetration of electric vehicles, that we're going to see that across commercial fleets, long haul trucking and the the bumps in the road that we've seen over the last couple of years, particularly you mentioned it earlier around battery prices and commodity prices. I think we're starting to see that level out and that those are growing pains. 
there's billions and billions of dollars being poured into U.S. domestic battery manufacturing that I think is going to stabilize the supply chain. And I, I think that uh, the, the huge amount of investment coming through the IRA will really catalyze growth in the next decade, really, of uh, EV growth. So I'm, I'm on the hype train for EVs broadly and uh, optimistic for that to be one of the next major technologies of this coming decade. Okay, first of all, I'm an Elon fan. You know, always have been, always will be. Whatever shit he does, and he does a lot. I'm, 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 a, I'm a total fan, you know, because without him, we still be talking about hydrogen cars and that's the future and so on. I mean, I kept this McKinsey report from 2012, 2012, the future of automotive, uh, the automotive industry. And if you, if you search, you know, control F, you search the word electric just once. If you search hydrogen, it's like 20 times. So, you know, you ask me about the future, the, the future is very hard to predict, but there are trends. So, so what's your take then? So your, your take is that the U.S. will get EVs and it's inevitable or is it just, uh, are we? It, it is, but uh, at the exception of Tesla, it looks like the, 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 the legacy guys are, are, are doing it reluctantly. Uh, just if you look at the lobbying and, and you know, Toyota USA, Toyota USA is almost a, a US company. But, you know, before Biden arrives, they were saying, oh, never going to work, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you've got regularly in the the Pravda, how do you call the Pravda? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal, you know, anti-environmental Pravda, the oil Pravda, you know, regularly popping articles like, you know, if it doesn't work, if he... What about, I, oh, I can't run a thousand miles without having to refuel in 20 minutes. You can feel that the GM and the Ford and, you know, would love that nothing change, you know, whereas in Europe, okay, the Germans are really have a problem. The German economic miracle was based on two legs. Number one, cheap Russian gas. And number two, uh, selling uh, petrol vehicles. So they're struggling, but, but, but uh, yeah, in the U.S., you know, at the end of the day, consumer is the same. You know, they want the best product, the cheapest, the most. But that's the U.S., right? We see change, right? I mean, if you look at telecom, if you look at other industries where, where they've pivoted, if you looked at the old telecom models, they used to have these big R-box and old telephones mm. and IP came along and these newcomers came in and, and disrupted. Now, the, the old guys are still around. They reinvented themselves. Mm. But isn't that happening with the Teslas, with the Polster, with, you know, with all these EVs coming in, isn't it just its early innings? When you read the articles that EVs are not going well in the US, well, the growth is still rapid growth. It's just not exponentially rapid growth. It's, it's just, it's a slower slope, right? It's still growing. I mean, we can make the parallel, but I think it's, uh, it's interesting, but you, you just can't apply the, the telecom uh, speed to the car. Jeff, an opinion? Oh, I, I gave my uh, EV take. I think, uh, yes, there's definitely uh, fleet mechanics. So we have to be careful about percentage of U.S. light duty vehicle fleet versus new vehicle sales. New vehicle sales percentage can grow much faster. And if the average vehicle life in the U.S. is 10 to 15 years, there's just a fleet turnover effect that's going to take a lot of time. So I think we're, we're absolutely talking about a multi-decade trend here. And, uh, but that's something that is going to, going to continue to grow. What about Cybertruck? Hype? Excited? 
Everybody, what's your opinion of Cybertruck? I've seen it in New York uh, when I was there at Thanksgiving. And it's, uh, wow. <laughs> okay. It's very non-European. Uh, I have a car here, which I don't really use in the center of London. And it's a relatively big car. Now, when I have the same car in the US, it looks like a mini. So the the, the, the criteria are not the same. So I, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm sure a lot of very intelligent people done a lot of uh, research around it. And, and plus, uh, you might get surprised, you know, tastes change. Fact, fact check note here. Uh, the Cybertruck is a foot shorter than the standard Ford F-150. Yeah, but there's, so no, it, yeah, but there's no F, Ford F-150 in Europe. There's none. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the biggest car you're going to have is probably a Range Rover or uh, SUV. Another thing in the energy podcast and when we're talking or in, in our both in our day jobs as well is carbon markets. Ah. So, you know, we a lot of this renewal, right? We're about trying to reduce greenhouse gases and carbons. What about carbon markets? What do you what do you think? Are they priced high enough? Do do they work? What's your thoughts? I was one of the creator of the European carbon market uh, way back when, 25 years ago. I advised the EU Commission. I was a PwC at the time. One of the 20 guys who wrote the first greenhouse gas protocol. And of course, everybody used now scope one, scope two, scope three. And I remember very clearly uh, those concepts. Anyway, so, well, first of all, the European carbon market was created at the same time we were liberalizing uh, energy. So they, they, what we were creating the carbon market in the same dynamics as we were you know, creating the energy markets. But look, the whole idea was at the time, gas was expensive, coal was super cheap, uh, nuclear was, well, you never know how was the price of nuclear. But the whole idea was to give a bit of a competitive advantage for gas and nuclear against coal. Th- that's the premise. Now, of course, there were other sectors like steel, cement, and so on. But, you know, guess what? They, they gave them the, 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 the allowances for free. Does the carbon market create some uh, competitive advantage or disadvantage? It's, it's very hard to say. It's, it's also, you know, does it increase the price of power or not? And even the renewables were not in the carbon market. They were dealt with subsidies. But the only positive aspect I see is that there's a price. There's a price, there's liquidity. Every day you can arrive, you can buy too, too much carbon you have or not. But that's a regulatory market. I think it's good to have a, to, to have a carbon price. Does it work? Yes, let's say it works. So you, you think it works on the current pricing? So, that, I mean, I think pricing needs to go up to make it work better, does it not? To really have an impact on total carbon? Because right now it's not even getting on most people's radar. It's, it's, the pricing's still pretty low. It's just a cost of doing business. It's very difficult because if on the top of that, you, you have the price of power, which in Europe has been pretty much flat for you know 10 years and then it went crazy 18 months ago we had things like uh, okay half of the european aluminum smelter closed okay the price of power was too high in fact they closed because they had contracts and decided not to produce aluminum and resell their contracts and 50 fertilizer fertilizers plant in europe have closed because the price unfortunately a lot of the polluting activities are high volume, low margin, and the price of energy is super important in them. And 
look, you have you have gas at three dollar per MBTU. Uh, Europe, uh, best case, we're gonna have ten, if not more. I mean, no wonder, no wonder, all those activities, you know, high volume, low margin, high energy content are gonna move to Texas. I mean, yeah, but that, that's that's what I, I guess I'm wondering. So, you know, as we were getting ready for this call, we were talking a little bit about the regional and the global impact of all this, and, mm-hmm. and, and going into the regions, and so. If an aluminum manufacturer shuts down in the EU, mm. and they simply move somewhere else. So let's mm. say it's made uh, somewhere where it's easier to make it, and then it's mm. imported in. It mm. doesn't cut greenhouse gases. The policy is not working then. No, but the question is, where is it going? And you know, if if they build a beautiful new smelter in Quebec, and you know, you're going to get a, a brand new aluminium with a you know, coming from hydro, and guess what? I mean, the price of aluminium has, is down pretty much uh, in, in a straight line. I mean, nobody's making a lot of money producing your, uh, you know, aluminium. So <laughs> it makes sense from a capitalistic point of view that those activities are are uh, located where it makes the most sense, and but provided we can, you know, move the stuff on the sea. Now, if they are produced out of China with coal or uh, out of um, the Gulf with gas, that's where you've got the mechanism, the carbon, where they'll, they'll pay the carbon on the way in. Laurent, it's, it's amazing to have your perspective on European compliance markets. And this is a big difference from the, we don't have a compliance market. We have really the voluntary market. And the rest, as you said, is done through RECs and state level renewable portfolio standards or it's done through the tax code. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an example there of how the uh, compliance markets can work. I, I have serious concerns about the voluntary market or oh. pinning our hopes and dreams on, on the voluntary market. And I'm concerned by the trends in the voluntary market, the way people are trying to fix this is to go to higher quality, higher durability, higher permanence. And my take in general about carbon markets is that if we've got a carbon market that's paying $2,000 a ton with zero co-benefits, that's hard for me to get behind. So I'm pretty negative on the voluntary carbon market as I see it. Currently, um, I, I don't have a more detailed or I can't, can't come to the level of um, informed opinion that you have on the uh, compliance markets in, in Europe. I wish we had something similar. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Never. It's it takes too much energy, and let's not forget the the most of the European industry was in favor of the carbon market. So really, it helped push the whole system. In in three years, it was done. I, I want to switch gears a little bit here. <laughs> I want to do a speed round with the three of us, yeah. and go over just a bunch of things that are happening, and just one or two word answers. Um, I want to start by saying COP. Quick feedback, short answer, Laurent. What do you think? No, it's good that people meet. <laughs> no, no, it's good that people talk. It's good that uh, for you know two weeks per year, it's it's on the radar of politician, and now you've got the big CEO coming in. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a great talking shop. All right, so air conditioned tents in the desert, Jeff. What do you think? I'm I'm pro cop. I'm definitely pro cop. Uh, I think we got a really um, encouraging outcome. Not maybe where everybody wants to be, but I think it was a big step and is appropriately hyped. I, I definitely like it. I think it may be a little overhyped for the results, but 
if you don't talk, you don't get anywhere. Oh, fun. Um, nuclear small modular reactors. I, I personally love them. Uh, I know Laurent and I've talked about this in the past. He's, we've had differences of opinion. I, I think that they're, there are a lot to be said in the future. I think they're going to be a, a wave of the future. There's a lot of investment going that way, and I think they'll become a reality and policy will change. I hope Do you think the, appropriately hyped? Uh, underhyped. Underhyped. Yeah. Oh. Ho, ho, ho. I hope you have invested in new scale. There's Oklo coming soon. That's going to be a, that's going to be a beauty. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, nuclear. No, nuclear work. Nuclear work if it's big. I want to believe. There's lots of reasons why I want, and it's really hard to build the large scale nuclear in, in the US, but I do think, unfortunately, it's, it's uh, overhyped. All right, Laurent, your turn. Okay, so um, interconnectors, transmission. My take is that's been a gate for in the US getting interconnection, if you're going to get that, is, is a problem. And it's not anywhere close to being solved at in the US. I agree. I mean, it, it's it's it needs to be hyped. It needs to be hyped more. It's a big problem. Every conference, every year for the next fifteen years, we're still going to be talking about the challenges of transmission and interconnection. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I wish that there was a better, faster solution out there, but I, I don't see any on the horizon. Okay, I'm super bullish, and I'm I'm gonna do it slowly because <laughs> I'm contrarian. Look. Most of the new capacity is going to be is going to come from intermittent resources. It's going to be wind and solar. Most of the new capacity, and we all believe that electrification, transportation, heating will increase power consumption. So you have a problem, which is space and time. Okay, time is batteries, but can be pump hydro, and space is interconnections. And I do believe that especially east-west interconnection are very important. Because we could go on between us all day long. Um, I've had a lot of fun. I think we've been all over the place, which is one of Laurent's uh, comments about our podcast. He never can quite figure out what it is we do. I think he's told me at one point because he's not exactly sure where we're going to go from week to week. So <laughs> why would this episode be any different than Insider's Guide to Energy? No, you're doing, look, guys, you're doing a great job and, uh, Look, it's great to have all this entrepreneurship initiative, people trying stuff and not everything is going to work. And a lot of money has been squandered on stupid things and lobby. You know, you talk about DAC and yeah, a lot of things are not going to work, but it's good to see, you know, that old generation pushing in the same direction. So, you know, whatever the mistake, whatever the scams, uh, overall, I enjoyed the travel. We're certainly not running out of topics, which is exciting for us. And Laurent, I, I appreciate the chance to share this, uh, the conversation with you. You bring a really different perspective than a lot of the folks that we, we talk to and not shy about opinions. I, I feel like you're the, the, the Jigger Shaw of, uh, of Europe in terms of your <laughs> oh. forceful opinions and, uh, and takes, which is really exciting and uh, wonderful to have you in conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Cheers. For our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's been fun working with Laurent and Edith Redefining Energy. And we'll talk to you again next time on the Insider's Guide to Energy.